Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. We are in the book of uh, Ephesians. My title this morning is a little odd, and I'll explain it, but it's uh, Revolutionary Subordination. And as we move from chapter 4 to the end of Ephesians, actually chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Ephesians, we're shifting metaphors. In chapter 4, there's this image of the body of Christ and the various parts of the body in Christ's head. And then as we move into the end of the chapter, there's a picture of a community, a polity, a city. And it's straightforward, actually, I think, to describe the body of Christ as functioning in love. In other words, that's the purpose of our community. The problem is how you take that understanding and fit it into an already existing polity, an already existing culture. And in a sense, this is always the problem that we face as Christians. That is, how do we translate the body structure of the church into a cultural, political structure? And just a practical example of this in first century, will slaves be emancipated? Eventually they are, right? But nowhere in scripture does it say we should end slavery. Will the household structure of paternalism, in which the father is something like a master or owner over the house, does that stay in place in the Christian family? And I think clearly it doesn't, it's changed up, but to some degree Paul will leave the household codes of the Gentile culture in place, but he changes them up. We're Father's Day, let's take the passage in Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so Paul affirms the first commandment, but he adds to it. Now that should strike you a little odd. I'm saying he adds to it. He adds to it a warning that fathers are not to be overbearing. They're not to frustrate their children. They're not to provoke their children to anger. And he's going to do this throughout the household codes. Maybe we could say the one with power. He gives us a principle. The one with power or authority now exercises this authority not from a position of domination, but of service, of service and love. I'm sorry to go political here, but it did remind me of Donald Trump's explanation to the U.S. governors. He said, you have to dominate. You have to go out in the streets and dominate. He told uh, the Chinese president, you have to put those Muslims under control. Put them in some concentration camps. Where the values of empire reign supreme, which they have for most of human history, then the lives of Muslims 
protesters, black people, ordinary citizens, are of less value. And this, I'm, I'm talking about a passage from Jesus himself. He refers to the rulers of this world, they'll lord it over you. He calls them the great men. And of course, that's kind of in quotes. They think they're great men. According to Jesus, though, their authority permits them to lord it over them. And that is their power to choose life and death. This is in Mark 10, 42. Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Or whoever wishes to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The great men of the world to dominate is what power amounts to in this valuation system. Now, Jesus is not undoing structures of authority exactly, but he is reversing them. And that's what I mean by revolutionary. He's, there's a Jesus revolution. But it's not a violent revolution, and it's not a revolution in which Christians control from the top. Paul is working with this ethic throughout in Ephesians 4.15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So the very point of structure is love. It's, you know, it's not authority. It's not domination. Power and domination in fact, are their own immediate reward, their own immediate glory. I didn't think I would ever see it in this country, but of course it's come true, but we often used to see it in Japan. There is a kind of, I, I don't know how to describe it, a kind of vain, you know, prideful type in Japan. As Christians, and maybe just in Western culture, through Christianity, there is the focus upon humility, especially in those in power. Both Jesus and Paul describe dying to the former way of doing life. In reference to your former manner of life, Paul says, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted, reading from 22 to 24 of chapter 4 that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and you put on the new self. So what is this new self? What does the new self look like? Well, it's not the self that would dominate and control. I think that's our natural tendency. But this self is in the likeness of God portrayed in Jesus, which has been created in righteousness and holiness and servitude and truth. And so my point here is the move that Jesus makes of becoming the servant is not simply relinquishing power, but I think it's actually the unleashing of a different sort of counter power, what we would call revolutionary subordination. And the very point of Christianity then, we're not in the control mode. We're not, that's not the point. The point is not to dominate the streets. This is not the point of power. I'm not saying there's an absence of power political domination, sexual domination. I think domination is the very point of power in this world. And I don't think there's really much beyond that. But as Christians, we give up on the very goal of being in control, of being 
dominant. We check out of that game and we enact in doing so a revolution. So subordination, you know, we normally don't equate that with revolution. But let me give you some instances. And luckily we have some cinema fans and theater fans with us today. And it's a kind of a crude point. But I think we almost need to make the point. There's the movie Speed. Who is it? Kenal Reeves. And in the movie, the bad guys, they've captured his partner, their policeman. Reeves, instead of shooting the bad guys, he shoots his partner. And of course, that shocks everybody. You remember in the movie Ransom, Mel Gibson, people kidnap his son and demand this huge ransom. And instead of paying the ransom, he puts up twice as much money for somebody to capture the kidnappers. Toni Morrison writes the novel, Beloved, and it's actually the, all based on a true story. It's the story of Margaret Garner, who was an escaped slave, who kills her own child because she's afraid that she's going to be captured again. And rather than let her child be taken back into slavery, she kills the child. In each instance, the situation is reversed and those who exercise power lose control because their would-be victim embraces the very thing that is threatened. My illustrations are not the equivalent of what takes place in Christ, but it illustrates that as Christians, the point is we give up on dominance, which in fact is a kind of move of disempowering the control of the system over us. How does the system control you? By your desire to work the system. The distinctly Christian manner, we can speak of unplugging from the social and political hierarchies that surround us. And the goal is to build an egalitarian community based on not dominance, not hierarchy, but agape love. This is the picture of Abraham, right? He's the very prototype of faithfulness, and it seems like he acts against his own best interest throughout his life. He's told to leave his home and family and his promised to child, and he spends most of his life waiting for the promised arrival till he's an old man. And then the child arrives, and he's told to sacrifice the child. The lesson of his faith, which is the prototype of Christian faith, is that his identity as father, husband, founder of a new people, it's not gained through his power, but he's to relinquish the forms of identity which would secure him a place in this world. The protection that the society would give, he abandons that. It's shattered by his subordinating himself to the command of God. That's the type that we're to follow. We abandon the safety of the position and power and security that embracing the world system will give us. And so Abraham becomes homeless, leaving his land. He becomes childless, leaving him no way to propagate his name. And his life is one long encounter with death, but this is the very nature of his faith. 
because it's through this that he escapes the order of existence. We might think of Ur, you know, the Tower of Babel, that's where Abraham's coming out of. This is the mode that Jesus is using to liberate us from the power structures. He's fulfilling the foreshadowings of Abraham. It's not through domination, but through subordination to the worst of conditions. He dies a terrible death, a slave's death. And his taking up of the cross is the very means of disempowering those who would use crosses and death as a means of enslavement. The willingness to take up the cross renders the threat of the cross powerless. And we are to take up our cross and follow him, right? His subordination is, it's not obedience. He's not obedient. Paul's not obedient because he's going to be beheaded. It's not acquiescence, but it's the inauguration of a new kingdom. Paul does the same thing. He doesn't cease preaching. None of the apostles are obedient, but they're subordinate. How are they subordinate? Well, they're all going to die a martyr's death. And for Paul in Ephesians, this is the mark of his being an ambassador of Christ. And so too, each of the disciples, you know, we could just go, they submit themselves to beheading, crucifixion. They all die other than John, the apostle. They all die a martyr's death. Sometimes I think I would have rather died Paul's way than survived John's way. He's boiled in oil. But this is counted as a form of witness. That's the word. Witness means martyr, right? And accepting death is not a form of obedience, but it is the most radical form of revolution as it accepts the threat and in doing so it empties power of control over us. And once death is removed as a means of control through faith, what is faith? Faith is death acceptance. Fear is cast out. They can't coerce you. And where the values of empire reign supreme in this world, the lives that matter are those of the great men, those who lord it over others, and this is their power. And the value of power is immediately evident in the prerogative to threaten people's lives, to cause suffering and death. You know, think in the world of Caesar. Roman lives matter, and Caesar's matters most. Every Roman soldier, as an extension of the power of empire, is representative of the value of Caesar. In the case of Caiaphas, whose lives matter, he would say Jewish lives matter. And the life of the chief priests in the temple, that matters most. So Sadducees, Pharisees, lives matter as they are the protectors and keepers of the Jewish way of life. Rome and Israel conspired in saying which life was expendable. What man must die? Whose life doesn't matter? Well, one man must die that the nation might be preserved. And who would dare defend the life of one Jewish slave against the needs of empire? His death is going to serve. It's going to secure empire. After all, it's slaves who make masters. It's the oppressed who make rulers. It's subjects who provide the ruler with the substance of his rule. In the world of empire, it is the representatives of power 
the blue lives matter and any challenge to this power needs to be made an example and that's what we have in the death of Christ. Christ's death forever exposes the means of great men and empire. It's a kind of jujitsu reversal that Christ and the early Christians played on empire. Maybe it's illustrated most clearly in the little book of Philemon, just a humble little book, just one chapter. And in this book, Paul is writing to Philemon about a, a slave who has apparently stolen some money and run away to Ephesus. And he's come to see Paul, who's in prison in Ephesus, and he's become a Christian. And Paul writes the letter and has Onesimus carry it back to Philemon. And Paul is willing, you know, here he, he doesn't say, oh, let's get rid of slavery, Philemon. Slaves, and specifically the slave Onesimus, is subordinate and is to subordinate himself to his master. But we're not finished. It was not Paul's goal. You know, he's not going to start a violent revolution. But I believe he effectively does away with slavery. Paul's mode of undoing this, he says to Philemon, I appeal to you, Philemon, for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. The name Onesimus, Paul is doing a kind of pun here. The name means useful. Onesimus, a useful one. He's saying he's useless to you formerly, but now he's useful to both you and me. He's living up to his name. And I've sent him back to you in person. And in doing so, Paul says in 10 to 12, I'm sending you my very heart. And Paul then complains, this Onesimus, this young slave, is a child, a son to me. He bears my own deepest feelings. He's the very center of who I am. Paul says in verse 17, if you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. You know, how do you think Philemon might respond? It's doubtful that he will regard Onesimus as anything short of a brother. In other words, there's not going to be slaves and masters in the church. Paul says, for perhaps this reason, he was separated from you for a while that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. This is Christ's ethic of revolutionary subordination applied. Paul identifies himself with the slave and he undoes the oppression of Onesimus. Now that's a very hard thing to be called to, but that's what we're called to. You know, we might say that Paul's exercising a kind of authority, but get the picture here. He calls his authority the authority of sharing in Christ. Certainly being in prison is normally not thought of as a place of power by any worldly standard. And yet Paul takes pride in being in prison because this is like the arrest of Christ himself. He is subordinate to the powers like Christ was subordinate to the powers. And he would have Onesimus also be subordinate. But in both instances, he is enacting a revolution. And this is the revolution that I believe we are to partake in. He is challenging the social status projected upon slaves at the same time as he is challenging the social status of being imprisoned. In fact, he considers his imprisonment a mark of pride. He says, 
These chains are a sign that I'm an ambassador of Christ. Paul sees his suffering as filling up, he says, the suffering of Christ, so that to suffer with him is to be identified as an ambassador of the gospel. It's a very simple idea. Christians do not presume to be in control, but they take control by presuming the status of a servant. We do not presume to have political, social positions from above. I'm afraid where the church images or imagines itself as being in control and joins itself to empire, it abandons the method of Christ, revolutionary subordination. God in Christ chooses to identify himself with suffering, with the oppressed. I don't know if you know the black liberation theologian, James Cone. He wrote a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Can we see the cross in the lynching tree? And of course, that's the image that the man who dies on a tree because of a mob, that's the one that looks like Christ. God is identified, Cone says, with the oppressed to the point that their experience becomes God's experience. God is known where human beings experience humiliation and suffering as he identifies with the oppressed and suffering. The very essence of divine activity as revealed in the cross and as revealed in Christian witness reverses this world's orders of power. The victims of the police state, those lynched and killed by the powers are most intimately identified with Christ. Christ's radical reversal of power enables us to line up every lynching tree, every victim of the thugs of empire with the victim of the cross. Christ was himself hung from a tree and his followers identify not with the ones who put him there, the lynch mob, the Roman lives, the Pharisee lives, the blue lives, but with the one on the tree, and thus with the victim of every lynching, every victim of empire, we recognize the person of Christ. With the kingdoms of this world, they rapidly fail, right? Under the rise and dominance of succeeding great men. But Christ is inaugurating a radical revolution that will endure in the church through the kingdom. And in this sense, the revolution enacted through Christian subordination, the revolution of Jesus, the revolution of Paul and the apostles. I believe it was the revolution enacted by Martin Luther King Jr. It is the revolution of the victims who refuse violence and choose love. And this is the only enduring sort of revolution. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.